like to join with Jeremy in welcoming you here today. And again, extend a, a big welcome to our visitors. We're glad that you're here and hope that you'll come back. The teachings of Jesus, I think, are something that we need to follow, obviously, and focus on from time to time. And I found myself going back to some of his parables and some of his teachings, and today I would like to look at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to do it the old-fashioned way. All of the, all the scriptures, the reading from Matthew 18, we're going to read the whole chapter. is not going to be on the PowerPoint some points and some references will be up on the PowerPoint. So if you'd get a Bible out and follow along, we're going to read all of that chapter, not at once. We're going to read it in sections and talk about some of the things that Jesus left for us. And really, I guess this is, you could call it relationships, how we deal with other people, how we deal with sin, how we deal with Jesus himself. And hopefully as we discuss these things, it will spur your minds to think. It will encourage you to study. As always, I try to make some points that are applicable to, to our lives. But I think especially today, it's going to be important that as you read, that you think about things that apply to your life. Many times when we do Bible studies, we say... Read this for what you can get out of it. And that's not just to go pick some wild meaning, but to look back at your life, look at your experiences, maybe what you're dealing with now, and see how can I make application to myself now. Because that's the great thing about the Bible. It's applicable to us all at any stage of our life in whatever condition we find ourselves in. So here are the main topics of Matthew chapter 18. And as we read these, we'll kind of read them in these groups. The first, and I think probably the reason it's the first, is because it's the foundation of the whole teaching, is being humble. It's going to talk about us causing someone else to sin. It's going to talk about someone wronging or sinning against us. It's going to spend a fair amount of time talking about our responsibility and seeking out the weak. It's going to talk about dealing with conflict and how to do that in the right way. And the, the largest portion, probably half of the chapter, is going to talk about being forgiving. And I think it progresses in this way for a reason, because humility is the foundation. And ultimately, I guess the outward expression of our humility is the ability to forgive. And Jesus spends a long time talking about us being forgiving and why it's a reasonable thing to do and why it's the Christian thing to do. So let's read the first five verses of Matthew chapter 18. <clears throat> and I've titled it, Is It Me? Because that's what the disciples ask. It says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. 
the disciples are like we are many times. We want to know who's, who's at the front of the line. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's a difficult thing for me to do is to, to put myself in the place of the people in the Bible and think of them as real people. Because it's a story written historically from many, many years ago, but they were real people. And when we think about the interactions we have with people, even if it's only in our own minds, we're often comparing ourselves to people and saying, well, I'm better than they are. Or maybe sometimes, well, I'm glad I don't have things as rough as they have it. But they were in that same mentality. They were comparing themselves to each other and maybe not in a bad way, but in a way that for sure wasn't humble, they were wanting to know who Christ thought was the best. And he took this opportunity to teach them that controlling our pride is the foundation, really, of all of Christianity. The opposite of faith, which is what we all want to build and we all want to have, is pride, in my opinion. Pride, not that I go around beating myself on the chest necessarily. That's maybe the definition I get is thinking about a football player or basketball player carrying on after they do something they think is really good. But pride manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Pride can be feeling sorry for myself. Pride can be putting other people down. Pride can be just simply doing what I want to and not considering other people's feelings. Ultimately, it's doing what I want to do instead of what God wants me to do. And that's why it competes so much with faith. Faith is just the opposite of that. Faith is that no matter what God asks me to do, even if I don't really want to do it, even if I don't understand why I should do it, is doing that. And Jesus teaches the disciples using something, as he always does, something very common, something they could understand. He used little children. And we all know that part of little children, that they rely on their parents for everything. They don't ask why until they get a little older. <laughs> but as a young child, they don't ask why. They just do what their parents ask them to do. They expect their parents to take care of them. They go to their parents when they need things. And that's what Jesus told them. They need to be converted. The disciples need to change the way that they think about things. And I find it interesting when he says be converted, he's already talking to the people that are following him. You know, in James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, we read this scripture, I do a lot, about converting people. And it says, if any of you do err from the truth that one convert him, let him know that he that converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. And in my mind, I think about conversion being something I do to somebody else to help change them from their ways. And, and that's part of it. But the conversion that Jesus is asking us to do in this particular, what he's asking his disciples to do, was on themselves. They weren't alien sinners. They weren't bad people that were turned away from God. They were followers of God. And what he told them is, you need to be converted. And what he was asking them to do is don't think about yourself, who's greatest, but to be like a little child. Be humble. Jesus in Luke 22 and 32 basically made the same same statement to Peter 
Again, the guy that we think is one of the stalwarts of faith. He was there with Jesus when he was being tried. We see his mistakes. We see his successes. But here's what he said. I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This is to the man that was with him through many of his trials. And he was still trying to convince him he needed to be converted. And I think we all can find ourselves in that same spot from time to time. That we need to think less of ourselves and more about God. And as we'll read through the rest of the chapter, and I think why it all hinges on this idea of humility, is we need to think about other people more than we think about ourselves. And when we do that, we have been converted. Jesus corrects him. He says the humble person is the greatest person. And, and, and again, we've all read that a lot of times. It's easy to read it and go, yeah, I know that's right. But what about when you get out grumpy, you get out of bed and you're grumpy and mad at your spouse for no good reason? Or what about when you're tired and don't want to do anything but sit around and do nothing and feel sorry for yourself? Or take any number of things that you can think of for yourself and I can think of for myself when really I'm just being selfish. That's what real humility means, is not to think about myself. Don't do things because I want them. Do things for God. Do things for other people. That's always what God has wanted. All the way back to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits, that inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God wants people that have a heart that will turn to him. God wants us to be humble. When we're humble, we'll get the real reward. And, and that, again, goes contrary to human nature. It goes contrary to what we see maybe around us. Sometimes we think the, the, the humble person's the one that gets stepped on. But God has promised it's just the opposite. The humble person is the one that God will lift up. The humble person is the one that God will take care of. And a lot of times I find myself doing everything I can, thinking I can control it all. And again, I'm not trying to negate hard work and being diligent and all the things that, that go with that. But ultimately... If, if I can't humble myself to God, then I'm not going to get the blessings that God wants me to have. Helping others is the true spirit of Christ. When he said go out and receive little ones, it's easy for me to say, well, he means let me go take care of the little kids. Remember, that was the, the, the example that he was using, not exactly what he was talking about. He was really talking figuratively that it's every one of our responsibility to go out and find those that are less fortunate. And that may be less fortunate in lots of ways. We think about that as being poor. It could be that. It could be those that don't know God. It could be those that are having a hard time. There's, there's a lot of people that maybe find themselves in humble or downtrodden circumstances. And if we're humble like we should be, like he was teaching the disciples to be, we're not too busy or we don't have more important things to do than to go out and help other people. 
the opposite of pride is that kind of humility. It's the idea that he talks about in Matthew 25, verses 35 through 40. And I'm not going to read it all, but it'll hopefully remind you of what it says. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. That's what humble servants of God do for other people. And that's what he was trying to get them to do, what he wants us to do. Now he's going to switch gears, but remember, he's still talking about these humble people that we need to receive. And he's going to give us some warnings about that. Let's read verses 6 through 11. It says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to seek, is come to save that which was lost. There's not many millstones around anymore. So for those of you who don't know what a millstone is, Back in the old days, when you were near a river and you needed to grind something, you might see a water wheel, and it was geared up to this big rock that they would dump wheat into, and rocks would rub against each other and grind the, the wheat into flour. A millstone was typically really, really big, six or eight feet in diameter. So think about a rock that weighs a couple of thousand pounds. And then think about tying a rope around that and tie it around your neck and throwing it off in the ocean and you know what would happen to you maybe you've watched gangster movies and they would bury their feet in barrels of concrete and throw them in the water that's the mental picture that Jesus is painting for those that would cause these humble people these little ones figuratively the children but in our world other people if we cause them to sin our fate is worse than that. Our fate is worse than this big rock getting tied around our neck and it getting chunked off into the water. It's a bad thing. And we can get the picture of what that means. So we don't want to be one that offends. And I think it's good to, to define what offend means because it's not what our typical, what our modern definition. Our modern definition is to displease or to make angry, to hurt someone's feelings. So if I say someone's offending me because you wore a UT t-shirt, I'm an Aggie, that would be an offense to me because I don't like UT. And, and it's kind of a joke, but we can think of all sorts of things that go against my personal preference or against your personal preference, and that aggravates me. Or maybe you might call it a pet peeve. That's not what the word offend means in this context. <clears throat> in scripture I think every time I read it what it means is to cause to fall or to allure into sin 
So it's not just you not liking something about me or me hurting your feelings. It's me causing you to sin. And there's a lot of ways that can happen. He doesn't enumerate all the ways. But it's taught throughout the New Testament. In Romans chapter 14, verse 13, this idea of what he's trying to get across is, is reiterated. Let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. This describes what Jesus is talking about when he says, when you offend someone, that we're putting a stumbling block in somebody's way, that we are putting an occasion to fall in their way. And those are numerous. They're all individual. There's many, many cases of that. But what I would like for you to do today is to have this on your mind. And as you meditate about things, think about ways that you can be the opposite of that. That you're not causing people to offend or causing people to stumble, but you're helping them to keep from stumbling. That's the, the, the idea that Jesus is getting across to, a, to his disciples. I'm going I'm to use one example. It's pretty corny, but maybe it'll get you thinking about some other examples. I taught my kids not to smoke, and smoking's nasty. For those of you that are smokers, sorry. <laughs> but it's not commanded against in the Bible. But if you're under 18, it's illegal. So therefore, it is commanded against in the Bible. So technically, for an 18-year-old boy to smoke, there's nothing wrong with that other than it'll give you lung cancer and all sorts of bad stuff. But spiritually, there's nothing wrong with it. Here's where the idea of putting a stumbling block in front of someone can, can come in. To me, it's not a temptation if somebody smokes around me. I wouldn't, I guess I'm still afraid that my mother might come and get me if I picked up a cigarette. <laughs> she probably wouldn't. But I don't want a cigarette. And by the way, I'm over 18, so it's not illegal for me to smoke. So it wouldn't be a sin if I did smoke. But what about the 15-year-old boy that rides around in the car with him? Guess what? It's a sin for that 15-year-old boy to smoke because it's illegal. And when I influence someone to sin, that's on me. And again, I say this may be a corny example or a simplistic example, but each of us can think about scenarios where this kind of thing goes on. Maybe it's not wrong for me. Maybe it's not wrong for some of the people I'm around, but we're not mindful of people that it might affect in a negative way. And that's what he's wanting us to do. Think about the weak people. Don't worry about the strong people. Think about those that are the weak people. That's who he's gone out to try to seek and save. Because causing the weak Christian to sin is very serious. Even the weakest Christian. Jesus' goal is to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he said in Matthew. That's what he also said in Luke 19, verse 10. That was his whole mission in life. And it's easy sometimes for us to think, well, that was for me. Well, because it was for me and it was for you but it was also for a lot of other people who aren't in the circumstances that we are, who are weaker than we are, who haven't had the opportunities that we've had. And he wants us to think about them. Think about the weak. He makes a comparison to sheep in, in verses 12 through 14. He says, how think ye? 
If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's a real proactive command. It's not hope the sheep come one, comes wandering home, but to go out and find the sheep. And he asked that of all of us. I think in our minds, and I always speak for myself when I say our, I guess I like to talk in, in second person or third person because it makes us all in a group because I think we all tend to think the same, same types of things. Well, that's an evangelist's job to go out and find sheep. Oh, that's the elder's job to go out and find the sheep. Oh, that's somebody else who's really good at that, their job to go out and find the sheep. And I make excuses in my mind for why that's somebody else's job and not mine. And as disciples of Christ, we've all got unique talents. We've all got unique personalities. We all have different friends and different people that we deal with. And every single one of us has the skill to be able to do that. But what it takes is go all the way back to verse 1 and remember that we got to be humble. Because when I make up all those excuses, when I go back to the root cause, guess what I'm thinking about instead of the weak one? Thinking about myself. Well, that'd be hard for me. Oh, that would be embarrassing for me. Oh, I don't have the skills that it takes to do that and on and on and on. When I really care about their soul like Jesus wants us to, we go out and find the sheep. It's not like little Bo Peep. I'm not sure if kids learn this nursery rhyme anymore, but we've all heard it. And here's the, the anti-example. Remember the, the phrase in that nursery rhyme, leave them alone and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them? That's not the lesson we need to learn from this. People don't come home wagging their tails behind them. I guess sometimes they do. People come to their senses. But it's our jobs to go out and, and try to bring them home, try to help them find their way home. Every example about Jesus going out and finding people that are astray. Not that he doesn't care about the 99 people that are here, but they're here and they're safe. We should all care about that one that's lost. Luke 15, verse 3, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. That's the spirit God wants us to have. The idea of shepherds and sheep has been used throughout the Bible. And here he's particularly talking to leaders in Ezekiel 34. It says, Son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And the idea of New Testament elders is patterned after Jewish elders. They had older men that, that helped uh, govern them and helped shepherd them, and that's who he's talking about. They weren't doing their jobs. Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. 
Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The disease that you have not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty you have ruled them. And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. God holds leaders especially accountable. And, and you, can, you can understand the history of the Old Testament, how those that were supposed to be leading the Jewish nation did such a poor job of it. They were so selfish that not only did the nation of Israel get conquered and divided up, but really the people that lived there were scattered all over the world. There were very few that remained faithful to God. But the point is still well made today. Leaders have a special obligation to seek after those that are lost. One thing I've learned, if I've learned anything in a couple of years, is you can't force people to be sought after. And if I could say anything, is make it easy to be sought after. And I guess that's, that's sometimes contrary because those that are sometimes need to be sought after aren't in a spot to be able to seek after it. But so many times, the folks that need the help the most, instead of having the humble spirit, and I'll put myself in the same category, when it was a small thing that could be dealt with, we box it up and wait until it's this raging fire. And by the time an elder or someone who's going to help is consulted or someone else that may be of help to that situation is consulted, it's such a big problem. It's almost like throwing a cup of water on a forest fire. It's really, really big, and lots of things can, lots of cups of water can get thrown in a forest fire, but it's really difficult to see progress getting made. But when it's still a little campfire, before the rocks got scattered and the embers blew over into the forest, that little cup of water might have put it out. And so I guess this is a little preventative maintenance and a reminder that you've got elders that love you. You've got other people that love you, and when things are going down the wrong path try to help when it's small try to make it easy to be sought after because we've all got the same goal remember the idea of humility leaders need to have humility nobody's going to rub your nose in it I, I can see, I've seen it from both sides and the earlier something gets worked on the better chance it has of getting the fire getting put out Isaiah 53 and 6, every one of us needs to be reminded of this all the time. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every single one of us has turned aside at some point or time. We all have gone to our own way. The pride that we talked about, we've all followed our pride. But together we can... Re be reminded that Christ paid the price for that so that we don't have to be on ourselves. We can be humble and turn to him.
You know, there's a number of songs in this songbook, songs over the past that relate to sheep. Brian led, bring them in. It doesn't, doesn't, didn't really say sheep or shepherd, but the same idea that seeking the lost, that we're like sheep. There's actually nine songs in this songbook that have the word shepherd of how much we need a shepherd to guide our lives. But we can't do that if we're not humble. In verses 15 through 22, it's going to talk about someone who sins against us. It says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. How do we deal with conflict? The principle that's taught is keep conflicts as small as possible. Going back to the analogy of a fire, the idea is to pour water on a fire when it's really small, not to take a small fire and chunk gas on it. We've all been there on both sides of those situations where we've been able to to maybe make a problem small. We've also probably added to problems at times. But what God wants us to do as we deal with problems is keep them as small as possible. And the way to do that is to have a relationship with people. We need to deal with, with each other as individuals as much as we can when there's a problem. If that doesn't do it, he says take one or two more to help sort things out. We've all been there too. Sometimes words get misconstrued. Sometimes we've, we're having a bad day and we hear things that weren't intended to be said or we say things that weren't intended to be said. God wants us to be able to work those things out. And bringing in a whole group of people is the last-ditch effort to solving a problem. Many times we want to grumble to other people besides the individual that we've got the issue with. Somehow that's going to help us work through things in our own mind. But when we're humble, like he asked us at the very beginning, we'll realize that that person's soul is just as valuable as my soul is, and we can work it out with them. Sometimes that's not possible, and that's why he gives us other steps to follow. But he wants us to be reconciled to our brothers, to our sisters, to people in general. He doesn't want there being issues he wants us to help each other because when we're together, we can go seek out others that are lost. You know, in this reading, he talked about two or three gathered in his name. A lot of times I've heard that used as, well, if there's two or three Christians gathered, they can have a church service. And really, that's not the context of this. The context is God is present in all of our relationships. 
So when we deal with people at work, God's in the midst of us. When we deal with our spouse and our family, God's in the midst of us. When we have issues with our brothers and sisters, God's in the midst of that relationship. He's present in all of them. It's probably been 10 or 15 years ago. If you remember the little bracelets that had the initials WWJD, what would Jesus do? I don't know that I ever had one, but the idea behind that was to remind us that wherever we found ourselves and we looked down, I guess by habit at our wristwatch, we'd see that and be reminded to think like Jesus would think. And that's the idea that he's getting across here. God is in all of our relationships. He wants us to, to remember that and to treat people that way. In the last two verses of this reading, verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, Not unto thee, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. I call Peter the teacher's pet. He was always, if a little bit was good, a whole, a lot, whole lot more was a lot better. And so he always tried to, seems like, uh, say he was going to follow God to the extreme. But what Jesus taught him, it wasn't literally 490 times to forgive somebody. He was using an extreme to make a point. And the point was, that we need to forgive people as long as it takes. We can't hold a grudge. We shouldn't hold things against people months later, weeks later, or years later. A lot of times, after two or three times, we're ready to wash our hands and say, well, these people, this guy, he's just like he is, and so I'm done with it. And maybe for the time being, we may have to be done with it. You know, there's lots of situations that you can't solve it immediately. But what he's trying to get us to realize is it's our job to forgive. Doesn't matter who it is. I've seen both sides of it. Sometimes it's really, really easy for us to be way patient with our family because, well, we know they've got a good heart, so we'll keep forgiving them even though they may do the same thing over and over. On the other hand, I've seen sometimes people are the hardest on their own family. Well, they ought to know better, so... Let me strike them off of my list and wash them, you know, wash my hands of them. And what he tells us is that we need to be forgiving over and over and over, even when we're worn out, even when we think it's enough, even when we think they've had their chance, not literally 490 times, but as many times as it takes. You know, in Romans 2 and 11, there's no respect to persons with God. doesn't matter if it's our family or not our family, our friend or not our friend. Again, in James, he warns us about having respect to persons, not something we need to do. In Matthew 6, it says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. One of the most basic teachings, we all could almost quote that probably, but sometimes we forget what it really means is to forgive people. Don't hold grudges against people. Let's read Matthew, back in Matthew 18, 23 to 35. We're going to make a few closing points uh, as we finish up. It says, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven like to a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, 
One was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. So I'm going to put those up there so you can kind of get a picture. 10,000 talents, what the best I could tell, a talent was 20 years of wages for an average laborer back then. So one is 20 years, what's that, 20, 200,000 years someone would have to work to pay that back. The point is, it's an insurmountable amount. This guy owed so much that there is no way he could work his entire life and he couldn't pay back what he owed. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. A hundred pence equates out to this. A pence was about a day's wages. So you take a hundred pence, that was about a hundred days' wages is what this guy owed. So compare it to 200,000 years of wages and 100 days. Something this guy could pay back, but relatively small. Really, really small compared to the, the first debt. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. And he would not, but he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that, he had called him, said unto him, O you wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because you desired me. Shouldest not thou have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And the Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. So back to our original, pride is the opposite of forgiveness. I think we can understand the point of the story. I'm not going to go back verse by verse and, and try to explain all the different things. We understand that he's talking about us. Our debt to God is more than we could ever repay. And the people that might do something to us, it's about that big in comparison to what we've done to God. And we need to be forgiving like God was forgiving to us. And it's our pride many times that gets in the way. What we're saying when we won't forgive somebody is I'm more important than they are. My feelings, my whatever is more important than them. We saw what the outcome was. Sometimes we think we're being strong because we can hold a grudge. And this was a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. God, Gandhi the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Really big people can forgive. Small people are the ones that can't. So as we think about it, our sins are great. But God freely forgives them. The things that people do to us in comparison are very, very small. So we should forgive them. If we don't, God's going to be angry with us, just like in the story. We need to pattern ourselves after the humble. Hopefully, that'll be the main point you take away from this morning. We've got to be humble. 
However we find pride getting in our way, let's deal with it. Let's try to deal with it. Let's pattern ourselves after what God wants us to do. Let's be mindful of things that we may do, maybe even unintentionally, that may cause other people to sin. It's a bad deal if we do that, and we want to try not to. Seek the lost. We sang that song right before the lesson, but it's something that's got to be on all of our minds all the time. Go out and find the people that need what we have. When there's conflict, the inevitable conflict, deal with it the right way. Be forgiving if you want to be forgiven. We all need it. We all want it. So we need to pass it along to other people. Hopefully you've been able to follow along with what we've studied out of Matthew chapter 18. Hopefully it'll give you some things to think about. Again, I try to make some points, but it's really important that you think about your personal situation and make an application of one thing. And by doing that, live closer to God. If there's been someone taught this morning that would like to be baptized, we would be glad to assist you with that. If there's someone here that would like the prayers of the church for any reason, please come while we stand and sing.